You're listening to Blaze, the go-to podcast for trailblazing entrepreneurs and anyone passionate about doing business differently. My name is Megan, and together with my guests, I'm pulling back the curtain to bring you the conversations that normally happen behind closed doors. We're sharing practical tips, no BS advice, and inspiring stories to remind you that no matter where you are on your business journey, you're not in this alone. Welcome to our community. Welcome to the Blaze Podcast. Hello, welcome back to the Blaze Podcast. I'm so glad you're here today, whether you've been listening for a while now or this is your first episode you're tuning into. Hello, welcome. You picked a good one to start with because today I am joined by the incredible Harriet Hadfield. After working as a celebrity makeup artist for people like Olivia Rodrigo, Naomi Watts, and Chelsea Handler, no big deal, along with global brands like Burberry and Glossier, Harriet was tired of the starving artist narrative that seemed to accompany her creative work and the common misconception that freelancing equals sacrifice. So she's made it her mission to empower other creative freelancers with the tools and strategies they need to step into the CEO role. She's co-creator of the award-winning full coverage podcast, which has over a million downloads, and her YouTube channel, Harry Makes It Up, has over 4.5 million views. And if that was enough, she also created a separate six-figure coaching business during the pandemic in less than seven months helping freelancers all over the world double their bookings and create life-changing opportunities. Like myself and all of you listeners here on the show, Harry's a big believer in collaboration over competition and sharing openly about her business journey and all of the ups and downs and lessons she's learned along the way. I don't want to get into spoilers. You have to listen to the interview, but it's a story I think a lot of you are really going to resonate with and relate to. And it's also just really full of practical advice and tips on how to embrace a way of doing business that feels good to you. So here's my conversation with Harry. Harry, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Megan. I'm so excited. I am so excited too. I have been looking forward to this conversation for weeks now. So why don't we start? We're going to kick things all the way back to when you're first starting your business, your entrepreneur origin story, if you will. Mm. So what were you doing You know, before you started your business? Did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Like, What's the backstory? I think like I'm a creative first and foremost. And I think the biggest misconception about being an entrepreneur is that it's not creative. Mm. And I think that couldn't be further from the truth. So when it comes to the origins, yes, I've always been someone who would describe myself as very artsy. I was like the kid who always like got my mom to collect the cereal boxes to (laughs) make whatever was like the new thing you were meant to make. And I was always playing, whether that was coloring books, like I was very playful, very artistic. But I've always been very driven as well. I think this ambition is something that a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to where I've never really seen a ceiling, like even from as far back as I can remember, like this idea of there being a ceiling, I've been like, how so? Tell me more. Like, I I feel like I don't really identify (laughs) with that. So I knew it's strange from like sort of 14 years old, I knew I wanted to be a makeup artist and I knew I was going to do it. I, I kind of made that decision very quickly and then part of me I I would definitely say I'm an all or nothing personality so it's like when I put my mind to something it's done (laughs) that's it it's happening it's happening like if it takes 10 years if it takes 20 years if it takes a year whatever it's happening so I did everything I could and again keep in mind this is pre-youtube this is even pre-myspace I remember being like I don't just want to be a good makeup artist I want to be the best makeup artist it was like of course yeah it's like if I'm gonna do it I'm gonna go all out and uh, sure enough I went and kind of did the studying that was available to me in terms of being a makeup artist and things were definitely a lot different back then being a creative to what they are now but I saw very quickly being an entrepreneur in the creative sense that there were all these imposed limitations. And again, the starving artist narrative, I think is very prevalent within creative industries. So I found myself being very like, okay, I'm being told it's gonna look one way. I'm being told the world is gonna look like this and it's going to be hard. My job in air quotes is gonna be nothing more than a hobby. I'll be lucky if I get to make money doing it. And yet, while I don't claim to have ever been the most academic person, I think what served me really well is my curiosity. So even when I noticed things like MySpace happening, when I noticed things like YouTube, I think I've always been an early adopter where I was like, ooh, 
in terms of those coming back to kind of my entrepreneurial roots, it's the curiosity I think that's always brought me to, okay, well, if someone's telling me you can't make a lot of money doing something, I don't believe it. Like I'm going to try for myself just to make sure even if someone says it can't be done. And I think this is where the creativity of being a creative actually really helps you as an entrepreneur is using your creativity outside of your skill set. So yes, if you're a photographer, of course, you're going to take beautiful imagery. If you're a makeup artist, you're going to paint faces beautifully. But that same creativity that's within you, I actually think is so important in business. And it's definitely be something, been something that has served me really well. Yeah, it's so interesting. I also thought of myself as a creative long before an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And I think business gets this reputation as being very analytical driven. But I think to make it work as an entrepreneur, you have to think outside the box. You have to kind of test those limits, like you were saying, and not just take people's word for it. You're like, well, I'm going to prove you wrong. (laughs) We'll see what's really possible. (laughs) So walk me through the early days. How did you, you know, get started in the beauty world? What were the major like turning points on your journey? And were you thinking of yourself as an entrepreneur right away? Or were you, you know, still in that creative Mm -hmm. role? That's a good question. I think the biggest at the start when I very first started out, my industry in particular as a makeup artist, go back some 17 years ago, I would say there was very much a prescription of what it was meant to look like. So back then, again, we didn't have Instagram, we didn't have YouTube, we didn't have the online world as we know it right now. So I remember having like a book of photographs that were like 11 by 14, it cost me like 50 pounds for each print (laughs) to like build my book. Um, Websites existed, but they were pretty janky. So it was like, you couldn't really like get, you know, even I think it was still something that, you know, again, this is pre Squarespace, pre Wix, like pre the DIY Mm -hmm. version. So there were all these potential like blocks in the way of how you get yourself visible. I think that was the biggest thing that was the hardest thing because you had to meet people in person. And a lot of that came through assisting and kind of shadowing other artists. Whereas the biggest, the biggest shift for me in realizing, I think my kind of uh, taking ownership, I would say of my entrepreneurial mindset and identity was, I think it was when MySpace started. Mm. I remember when MySpace started and it was like Lily Allen and I I was in university at the time. Um, I just moved to London and luckily I was surrounded by a lot of creative people and we were all kind of immersed in, oh, things are changing. We entered this industry being told it's going to look like X, Y, Z for us to have any kind of success. The pool would be very small. There wouldn't be room for all of us. And there was very much this kind of dog eat dog vibe. Like you're going to have to be willing to go that extra mile. But that also had an air of like sacrifice within it where Mm -hmm. there was this idea that not only would it be hard, but so many of us would be left behind, which I think made our industry very competitive. Um, There's been a lot of secrecy in creative industries for a long time as well. And I think, like I said, watching MySpace, I was like, oh, this is the future. While I didn't think it was going to just stay my space, I remember thinking, okay, Lily Allen has just created her own music without a record company. Like, and okay, yes, she had famous parents, but it was interesting seeing people start to be like, here's another way I could do it. Yeah. Like Lily Allen didn't even have to do the MySpace thing. But I was fascinated by, and sure enough, the people I was at university with, I was around people who were going to be the next big designers, the people who were going to be the next big photographers, and watching them craft something and create something from scratch where, to be honest, there was no rule book. And I think that was what was so exciting for me was like, like we've been told it has to look a certain way to be successful as a creative. And I think all bets are off. Oh, it's so true. And I feel like that was such a pivotal moment. You're really on, you were on the the cutting edge. It was a huge shift in the industry and so many industries. I was thinking, you know, there's so many examples of people who kind of, their careers were launched during that time period. Taylor Swift started on MySpace, I believe, like huge artists and creatives um, got their start in that time period on those platforms. So what were some of the strategies? Like, how did you get your, your business and your makeup business off the ground? Yeah. So one of the first things I would say I did very actively was probably YouTube. I would say that was the first platform that I remember being like, I mean, I remember trying to film something on my laptop through like the camera on my laptop being like, okay, janky is like being nice. It's <laughs> like really bad. And again, at this point, you know, I wasn't really making a lot of money as a makeup artist. So it was very bootstrap. Like I remember being on shoots and the Colorama, which is like the backdrop the photographer would use, 
is usually paper and they kind of cut it off each at the end of each shoe and throw that part away when it's been trodden on. And I would be like, hey, can I take take that piece of paper? (laughs) (laughs) And I would duct tape it to my rental (laughs) and just like use that as my backdrop. Again, I, you know, this is pre, I think, I don't even think Amazon existed yet. It was like, or not in the way that it does now. So even figuring out like, okay, how do I get some secondhand lights? Like what can I afford? And, you know, just using like Ikea lamps around the room. It was very makeshift. But very quickly, I could see that's where the industry was going. And what was interesting as well was I think there was a lot of anger against it within my Mm. industry, especially from kind of like the industry veterans who were like, no, it's old school. Yeah. Yeah, Like it's been hard for me. So it'll be hard for you. And I remember people would be like, the bubble's going to burst. People would always say. This internet thing is just a a trend. (laughs) This internet thing, it's so temporary. And I just watched it get bigger and bigger. And I remember thinking, and you know, there was animosity. I definitely remember being on set sometimes and people being like, oh, that's cute. You have a YouTube channel. Like it wasn't taken seriously at the beginning. And it was almost seen as like, not cool. It was very like, a little bit extra whereas I'm so proud of like baby Harry (laughs) she was like you know I think back to when COVID happened and so many people were in my DMs being like can you tell me what lights I need can you tell me how I do xyz and it was like oh how the tables turned (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I think YouTube for me was a big turning point in that I I definitely saw opportunity, but it also felt fun for me. Yeah. I really enjoyed the connection with building a community. It just, it it felt like, oh, again, this idea of breaking the rules. I think I'm very attracted to what are all the ways I meant to do it? And then how do I find my way of doing it? Yeah, you are such a great demonstration of all the entrepreneurial qualities, right? Breaking the rules, <laughs> burning the playbook, doing things your own way. And you stuck with it, right? You know, like what year yeah. was, I'm thinking, you know, when did you start your YouTube channel? I think I was looking the other day and I think it's been going for 13 years now. Wow. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I've definitely had like hiatuses and like, you know, given myself breaks with it. But at the beginning, I definitely think it was an integral part of brands getting to know who I was. It was, again, before Instagram, like, you know, celebrities teams could be seeing who was making a lot of noise in the industry. And I think the beautiful thing about the internet is you no longer have to live somewhere like LA or London or New York to be a successful creative. Like that really did like even the playing field. Yeah, there's so many opportunities these days, especially. I mean, you were sort of just on the cusp of it, but now there's so many different platforms people could use. Yeah. I'm curious, what advice do you have for people who are just starting out in a creative mm. industry and they they want to get online, they want to get their name out there and connect with clients, but it's obviously a very different landscape, the digital world now, especially yeah. post-pandemic, than it was when you were starting. There's a lot more noise, a lot more quote-unquote competition out there. So, you know, what do you... What advice do you give your students? Do you still recommend the same strategies or is it different? I would say the first thing is, yes, there's more, there's more competition, but there's also more clients than there's ever been. So again, you think back to like 20 years ago, a photo shoot was like just reserved for celebrities. (laughs) Like it was just a thing celebrities did. I have to say when I had my first brand photo shoot, I felt like... (laughs) such a celebrity I love it yeah and I just think you know beyond like if you're a photographer for example yes of course there's always been wedding photography and corporate photography but there's so many niches within niches now that I think there are so many clients it's insane and again I think people want you to think that the market is slow or small because you have to ask yourself, who does it benefit if you think that? So I always say to my clients, first of all, if you believe the market is slow, it will be. And who benefits when you believe that, especially when we think about this old school narrative of there not being enough room for everyone to succeed. I think like you mentioned, the digital world, the digital landscape will continue to evolve. And I think that gets to be really exciting. So when it comes to the first part of advice I give my clients, as well as giving them strategies that we believe are timeless, are relevant of what's happening with AI, writer strikes or whatever's happening in the industry. The first most integral thing is 
be willing to start, be willing to have your first post suck, be willing to have your first YouTube video be janky. I think everyone, and especially when you're a creative, like it's not a coincidence that a lot of creatives have a flavor of perfectionism or a flavor of it can't go live until it looks a certain way. Oh yeah. But then you never start. And I think, like I said, when I think back to baby Harry and like the duct tape piece of color armor on her rental, it's the willing to be messy. It's the willing for it to be janky is how you succeed. It's so true. I think in a lot of ways, creatives make ideal entrepreneurs because of that creative mindset, yeah. the willingness to see the possibilities and to just go yeah. for it. But at the same time, the flip side is that perfectionism is also really common and that can just kill your business in the water because you never start <laughs> and you have to be willing to yeah. be a bit messy. So I want to ask you as well, you know, a lot of creatives, especially they think of themselves, they're so boxed into that role that they struggle to see themselves as the entrepreneur or they maybe they identify as an entrepreneur, but they still are thinking that I'm just not good at certain areas of business. They're struggling mm -hmm. with like the CEO side. They're like, I just want to be a photographer, a designer, an artist. And, you know, the business side is not for me. So obviously that could hold people back in a lot of ways. So I'm curious, like, what are, what's your take on that? Do you see that, you know, in yourself and, and your clients and what advice do you have for people? I definitely see it. And I've seen it in myself and in my clients. And my take on it is that within all of us, like there is with all of us who are creatives, there is our inner creative, like I call it our inner artist and our inner CEO. And I think what happens a lot of the time, we've just had the dial on mute when it comes to our CEO. So our artist has made a lot of the decisions. So again, we can't put that out unless it looks perfect. Like we have to have done this amazingly or so many times before this can go live or whatever it is. Whereas our CEO is them. They want us to make money. <laughs> they want us to get paid. And I think, you know, again, when we think about the stories, the beliefs, the narratives around being a creative and we can go like way way back in history to the point where you know painters didn't become famous till they were dead like people didn't celebrate their art until they died so I also think when I think about the idea of like the starving artist narrative this there's almost like been the romance of that a little bit as well like mm -hmm. a kind of badge of honor of like well are you a real artist unless you've like struggled for your art and I think that's something that I a big part of my mission is to create more six-figure creative freelancers and from a place of not only have I seen that happen in myself and my clients but undoing these stories and recognizing like being a creative isn't something you have to apologize for and again, I think there's so much nuance to this, especially if you are someone in your family who maybe you are the only creative person. Let's say your parents both have salary jobs or all your friends went into careers where they're nine to five. It is so wildly different, like our whole world from how we get paid, how we find clients, how we create our version of consistency it's almost like you have to let go of everything you've seen everyone else do in order to enjoy it and find fulfillment. So I think learning how to turn the dial up on your inner CEO is a big part of the work I do with my clients is helping them see, yes, the strategies we need to do that are relevant in the digital age, but we also need to speak to your inner CEO and artist. And my belief is like you have to remarry them. They have to work together. Like when they work together, you'll be unstoppable. Mm. Yeah, it's so true because, you know, one is nothing without the other. And if you turn the dial down too much on the creative, then you're yeah. going to lose a lot of the, the joy and the reason exactly. why you started in the first place, right? Yeah. So what advice do you give people for turning up that dial on the CEO? Like, where do we start? How yes. do we, you know, get tactical and step more into that? I think the first thing is notice. How do you make decisions? So when it comes to making decisions, is it around, it, do they come from a place of scarcity? Does it just come from creative fulfillment? And again, are there any narratives you're holding onto that maybe whenever yours in the first place? I always say to my clients, like just because we got told something or we've heard something, and even if it's been repeated millions of times, it doesn't mean it has to be your thought or your belief. So I think the first thing is get curious, become aware of whose advice do you take? Whose advice do you take as well? Like my favorite thing is like, don't take advice from broke creatives, <laughs> people who want to <laughs> sacrifice and struggle or are yeah. going to wear that badge of honor. Stop taking advice from them. Like that's one way that exists. It doesn't represent our entire industry. 
It's so true. And on the opposite side of that, look for people that are successful, that are making good money this and showing you what's possible, you know, look for people like Harry, like get out there, follow them, see what they're doing, (laughs) learn from them. And you are proof for so many people that it is incredibly possible for people to make Mm. good money doing what they love in an artistic field. And more than that, you know, beyond just for creatives, because you're also someone who has several neurodivergent conditions and you have become an example of that as well. So would you mind sharing a little bit about, you know, how that's fit into your story? Yeah. So I definitely think growing up, I just always was like, oh, I'm just weird. There's just something wrong with me. Like I remember thinking for as lo- as far back as I can, I just remember thinking, and I don't think I had the awareness to be like, it's my brain. <laughs> I definitely didn't have the awareness to be like, oh, my brain's different. But I've always been someone like, I feel very deeply. Like I, I again, mm. people will say like, I overthink I'm all or nothing. And I was like, that was true for me to a fault, to a point where it caused me intense pain. And I was actually diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder and Tourette's at I think it was age 23. And a lot of pieces started fitting together. Um, My OCD actually got so bad from being burnt out as a young creative in the industry, kind of subscribing to the hustle culture that I actually couldn't work for a year. I actually was diagnosed like medically unfit to work. And I think, again, even when I think about being neurodivergent, there are a lot of ways, you know, people will say, oh, that's just my OCD. That's just whatever. Like there's also terms that get thrown around a lot, which I appreciate there's no malice meant. But I also think the hardest thing for me was really learning how to work with my neurodivergence, I think I would say is the biggest thing. Mm. So first of all, having compassion for myself that, no, my brain is different. (laughs) My brain is different. That's a fact. But I also get to decide what I think about that. So my thought today is, yeah, some things will be more challenging sometimes and it will look different for me to how it does for someone else who's maybe not neurodivergent. But if I didn't have my neurodivergence, what else would I not have? And I think that's something that's really special to me now is like, it is a big part of my creativity. And again, I've I've really learned to be like, okay, how do I work with it? So my thinking being very all or nothing, there's definitely ways that's contributed good in my business as well. Like again, when I decide I'm gonna do something, I know I'm gonna do it. Like I'm not mad at that. But I've also had to learn how to work with the parts that can definitely feel unmanageable at times. And I would say the biggest takeaway for me is like, just because you have a neurodivergent brain, it doesn't mean what you want isn't available to you. Mm -hmm. It's just going to look different. And I think it's really settling into when you learn to own all the parts of you. And like I said, kind of make peace with the fact that actually there's parts of this that help me in many ways as well. And I think for me, the big thing was finding out how I could support myself better with my neurodivergence was life-changing naturally. Like when it got to the point where I couldn't physically work, I mean, there was a point where my OCD was so bad when I was younger where I couldn't leave the house. Like I would believe the oven was going to turn on like taps. I used to, Mm -hmm. and it was very like my OCD was very visual. Like I would see things happening. Like it would play out the scenario, which meant it was very uncomfortable being in my head at times. It was like, okay, this is really overwhelming. But I was lucky enough to get some professional help to get support. And again, that's why I'm very active about talking about mental health, because again, I think in creative industries, there is this narrative of like, it's normal to suffer. It's normal to struggle, like a little bit like, oh, it's good for your art. Yeah. And that's why I want to be very clear when there's, I when I say there's parts of my neurodivergence I'm grateful for, it's knowing the difference between when it becomes unmanageable and when it's not loving. I think it's knowing like how to work with it in the fact that it's so multifaceted. Yeah. Absolutely. So well said. And I think it's interesting because I have seen, you know, just offhand examples like being a creative entrepreneur in this space, there are so many people that either struggle with mental health or have a neurodivergent brain or they're dealing with these things. And it's so common and yet so much of the business advice is still geared toward, you know, a neurotypical brain. And so we read these strategies and these tips online and it's like, you know, follow this productivity advice and, and do the things. And then when it doesn't work, we just beat ourselves up for it. So I'm curious, like you said, you know, learning to support yourself is huge. So what did that look like for you? 
So what I say to myself and my clients in general is like the way I think about productivity, the way I think about growing a business, it's like you need a toolbox. You need a toolbox where on certain days you're going to pick up a different tool to what you might do the next week. So for me personally, like having like a set way that's very rigid and very locked of like, this is the right way and only the right way doesn't work for me personally. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work with my creativity. (laughs) So I think first of all, what I like to say to myself is what are the non-negotiables that have to happen in my business? Do I know what they are? Because again, my brain can very easily take a list of 50 things and be like, well, they're all (laughs) non-negotiable. I have to do all of them today. (laughs) Yeah, versus like you get three. (laughs) So I'm very good now at being like, okay, three things get to be the priority in any given week. And being really, really honest with myself with, especially when my brain is like, okay, more is better. Like I'm very good now at being like, what if I do the least? (laughs) But it's things that actually, for want of a better, better word, move the needle, actually have impact in my business. And I think letting go of the idea I was in a rush, that was huge for Mm. me. But definitely in terms of the strategies, again, I've, I've really learned how to work with my energy type. So for me, sometimes I genuinely need like a month to rest, but then I might, I mean, this week, I think I recorded like two YouTube videos, two podcast episodes and 25 reels in the space of two days, so probably over six hours, but nothing in that felt hustly or hard or it was more like, oh, I was in the energy flow. And again, I, I know how to put systems in place so that I can prepare for what I call like an energy surge. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, it's like I'm not waiting for myself to be motivated. It's different from that because like I said, I have this toolbox. And I think the biggest difference is I know my non-negotiables, but I do know how to work with my energy. So even the things I finished this week, I was like, oh, now I have all this space. I have the space for my my artist as well as my inner CEO. They get to have a little party and decide like what's the agenda for the rest of the month. But I think checking in with yourself as well. So when you said like what other things did I do? Obviously, I when it came to my OCD and the Tourette's, I definitely had uh, worked with mental health professionals to help me there. But I think even learning more about the nervous system, like that's definitely helped me a lot because. If there's one thing I really misunderstood, I would say at the beginning of my mental health journey was the idea of rest. I always thought rest was like, oh, you just sleep more. You just Netflix and chill more. And don't get me wrong. I love those things too. And they're totally valid. But I think especially when you're a neuro, when you have neuro, when you are neurodivergent, learning how to rest your brain is a very novel concept. It's like, sounds nice in theory. How the hell do you switch this off? Like you said, how do you turn the dial down? So I think for me, like I actually had to learn how to connect my body to my brain. So I'm very like, I like to, before learning nervous system work, I was very much like, okay, I can solve any problem just with my brain. Like it's all in my brain. Like everything is in my brain. Whereas I think I had to learn to be like, okay, when I feel stressed, where do I feel it in my body? And kind of learning practices in terms of how to release those things as well so that I could process Because I think as entrepreneurs and creatives, the goal is not, we're never going to feel stressed again. That's not the goal. The goal is to be able to move through and process things that feel hard or challenging and be able to carry on going. Yeah, so true. So true. And I'm just sitting here (laughs) nodding my head and I have ADHD, so I'm also, (laughs) I don't have no off switch. You know, how do you turn off? I think the learning to rest piece is so key and to rest your brain, right? Because like you, I used to think rest was just taking a nap and sitting on the couch and watching TV. But are you really mentally resting during that time? Are you really switching off? And, you know, whether you're neurodivergent or not, having a business and, you know, being an entrepreneur, it's hard to switch off that work brain sometimes. So I'm curious, like, are there any specific practices Mm. like you know are you using yoga breath work like Mm. what is what's in your toolkit on the the physical side definitely breath work I love journaling because I find sort of I like I like journaling from a place of like hey Harry I almost like write it to myself (laughs) so I kind of like having like an outside perspective Mm. when I write in my journal I find that really helps me because I'll be like what's going on what's happening here? Like, really yeah. 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 And it's very much like how like I would talk to a friend. So I found that's like a really loving place to be when I journal. And yeah, sometimes I will just brain dump what I'm feeling and be like, okay, I'm really mad at this. Or, okay. I've like got a lot of feelings around this, but especially when it comes to changing how I feel or being able to process something, 
I have practiced like speaking to myself from from the lens of being a friend and also like baby Harry. So I actually write a lot of stuff like from my inner child. I'll be like, like and I'll ask her like, what do you need today? Like, what do you need? Like, mm-hmm. I know a lot of my thing, especially when learning about my mental health was this fear of rejection. Like well, what yeah. happens if I do fail? Like failure, I think we can all talk about at a very surface level thing, but there was a heaviness around that especially ironically the bigger I got as a makeup artist and the more success I had and I noticed the same as an entrepreneur I was like the dangling carrot gets closer to your head and you chase and chase and I think again that awareness of like why am I in a rush what am I chasing and I think as well like where can you create more fun And again, fun, I think we have this idea of being big, elaborate sort of like jazz hands, but like find out what is fun for you in the same way you need to explore what makes you feel rested. And again, if it's a toolbox, what are seven things you can do that genuinely help you rest your brain? For me, I know it's being with friends. I know it's having a margarita with my husband, like going on a date night. Um, You know, I love playing with style. Like I love exploring like how I show myself physically to the world. Like they're all things that, again, they're an extension of my creativity. But at the same time, there's not just one thing I rely on to help me Mm. rest or find fun, but you have to kind of seek it out. I think sometimes we wait for fun to come to us and it's like, oh, there's no fun. It's like, no, you have to put the same energy into that as you do getting clients. Yeah, put it on your calendar, schedule it. My husband calls it, what does he call it? My husband calls it spontaneous fun. (laughs) I'm sending you a Google Calendar invite right now for date night. Like, like, do you have spontaneous fun in your calendar? And he's not neurodivergent, so it's really funny when he's like, do we need some spontaneous fun time? And I'm like, yes, I do. (laughs) No, I love it though. And I think it's such a good tip to come up with your own list of, you know, let's say like seven to 10 things that bring you joy or make you feel rested and fill your cup back up because it's going to look different for everyone you know my best friend when she's yeah. like stressed out and things like she's she goes to meditation and yoga and like something really yeah. restorative and I am a bit more high energy and want to get out and like do something and go out with people uh, or for me like reading mm. really fills my cup back up I'm like I will sit down with a trashy novel for an hour and be like okay I'm good now yeah. I feel rested yeah so yeah you need to think about what works for you and, and make that list and be really intentional like you said yeah. And I definitely think, again, there's you can't get it wrong. Like, that's the beauty yeah. of, like, finding what rest is for you and what fun is for you. And it could change. Like, I know there's been seasons where, um, you know, running has been really good for me. And then there's been a season where I'm like, oh, actually, maybe it's like a slower Pilates now or something mm-hmm. like that. Maybe I'm in a season of I want to travel loads and I want to be outside in a city. And then I might have a season of, like, no, I want to get a cabin in the woods and hibernate. Like, yeah. <laughs> again, I'm very open to the fact that nothing has to stay the same. It's not my my OCD brain will get very, oh, that's it. You've cracked it. We have to now do this forever. Mm-hmm. Like my brain will latch onto something. And what I've had to learn to do is be like, where are their seasons? Where are their seasons? So I can ebb and flow. And again, just be conscious of like what feels good right now gets to be the thing that's filling my cup. And it's okay if it looks different. A month from now, two months from now. Yeah, I love that perspective. That's something I've recently, just in the past like year or so, started thinking of my life in seasons rather than like, this is it. This is yeah, the routine, yeah. the thing I will do forever. Because like mm-hmm. you, I'm also very all or nothing. And I'm like, well, that's it. Now we're in this forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one thing that I'm doing. Um, and I think, you know, it takes that pressure off yourself of like, I have to find my thing. What is my thing yeah. going to be? And it's like, okay, what's my thing going to be for like the next three to six months? <laughs> Yeah. And also like, our, I think, I think when you said about the all or nothing, like that's the problem. If I, if my brain decides, oh, this is good and anything different is bad, my brain will be like, well, you didn't do it this week. You're a terrible person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're a terrible person. You have failed. <laughs> it's so good to say it out loud though. Because it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. There's a comedy in it, right? Like yeah. how set in stone it is because my brain still believes there is a blueprint that like once I have it, my life will be perfect. Mm. And I think that's the biggest misconception. Like it doesn't matter how much money you make, how much success you have, how creative you are. Like life is always going to be this thing that moves. Like it isn't linear. Like it's always going to look different. And again, I think like you said, this is why I love the idea of seasons because seasons change into one another. Like 
you know, I think in summer I was waking up at 6am. I had this lovely little morning routine. And of course my brain was like, this is it. You've cracked the code. This is it. We can't stop doing this. And yet it's been, now we're in, and I'm going to use air quotes because obviously LA winter is not, (laughs) it's like still sunny. It's still summer. But you know, it's getting dark earlier and I'm like, oh, I want to wear more cozy clothes. I've been sleeping in every morning. And what's like literally to me mind blowing is how that isn't a problem today. Like that's something that would have spun me out Mm. years ago because I would have compared and been like, you were, you had so much more worth when you were getting up early yeah like I would have really believed that whereas now I'm like no we're just in a season yeah no I can I hear myself in that the not getting up early thing it's like well you know as soon as you do it for a couple months you're like I am finally on track this is it I've like you said cracked the code and and it's so true so I think so many people listening will will relate to that as well I think it's (laughs) and it it helps to say it out loud right because when you do and you share these experiences like with other people or you hear other people talking about them just to say that stuff out loud like you said adds like the comedic element it's like okay am I really going to do this every day for the rest of my life is this really it like of course life is going to change and what does it mean if I don't yeah and I think you know I remember reading um I can't remember who it was now but I remember someone reading like a a a uh, saying something really funny where they were like you know everyone now thinks they're supposed to have an ice bath and a cold shower before 5am because it's kind of like the hot new thing. And I think, you know, like, especially in the coaching world and the marketing industry, like we see these ideas of like the perfect morning routine, the perfect, perfect evening routine. And I remember this guy being like, call me crazy, but I love a hot shower. (laughs) Like, I'm with you. I like a hot shower. And okay, it doesn't mean I'm never going to try an ice bath, but it's also okay if I absolutely hate ice baths. Like it doesn't take, do you know what I mean? I think we kind of will label certain people successful. Again, I think it kind of comes back to this idea of like the sacrifice or how far are you willing to go versus Mm -hmm. that, what if it gets to be easier than that? (laughs) What if you don't need to wake up at 5 a.m. and have an ice bath to have a successful business? Like, call me crazy, but uh, like, I don't know. It seems possible. Yeah. And I will go on the record saying I will never start my day with a cold shower or ice bath. I'm not afraid to make that yeah. commitment publicly. It's just not going to happen. I, I don't see it happening for me. I've got to be honest. But yeah. I remember just being like, yeah, there's nothing better than when you get in a hot shower and you're like, oh, this yes. is it. Yeah, <laughs> This is the one. I am a big believer in trying anything once, but you got to draw the line somewhere. So that's for me. I, I Especially yeah. here where it's dark until like, 7 30 a.m here in canada and it is cold it is negative yeah. 25 so when i wake yeah. up in the morning i'm not getting into a cold shower but no. yeah i want to um double back to something we touched on earlier which is making the most of the brain you have and the thought processes that you mm. have which comes with both strengths and weaknesses so obviously there's a lot of strengths in you know people with a neurodivergent brain there can be strengths to it creativity is a big one uh action taking and just being able to like go for it but it's always a double-edged mm. sword right so for me i am an action taker but the the flip side of that is I can be a little too impulsive with the action taking so how do we counteract Mm. some of those weaknesses you know if you've been beating yourself up for having those things it's like how do we start to build systems to support that that's a great question and I think again it starts with the awareness of like have you spent some time thinking about your energy type so I'll give you an example I remember I had a client who we were coaching her and she was like oh my god every time she was a writer and she was like every time I do this I leave it to the last minute and I was like okay is the work you do good and she was like yeah it's my best work and I was like the work gets done on time still it's the last minute but the client gets and she was like yeah and I was like okay what if what if you work best doing it last minute and like how can you plan for that what if you just know two days before a deadline you're not going to go out you're going to have that last minute time but the difference is you decide it's not a problem. And it's funny because it was like so revolutionary to her. She was like, oh my goodness, the only thing that's been causing me stress is the fact I thought I was doing it wrong. Mm. The only thing that was causing me stress was the fact I was giving myself a hard time that I couldn't be someone who did it in little incremental chunks every single day. And I was like, yeah, again, I think even if you're not neurodivergent, I do think being a creative, we have these kind of like injections of energy. We have these kind of lightning bolts of like, I'm inspired. Oh my gosh, I want to try this. Like that is very true of being a creative. And for some creatives, they may be the person who wants to do a little incremental bit each day. If that's you and that works for you, go for it. But if you're not and you find that you do your best work doing it last minute, that's okay too. So I would say 
what happens if you become aware of where do you work best and what happens if you remove the judgment? Like if you take away all the ideas of how quote unquote getting it right, being productive, I mean, even productivity, like that is something that, you know, this whole saying like toxic productivity, it makes so much sense. We use something that is just a concept. Like, again, there's not one way to be productive. And I even think I have a friend who's an author. I remember her saying like, I'd love to be the person who writes a chapter a month. And, but she was like, no, I go away and I lock myself somewhere in a room and I write a book in three days. (laughs) She was like, that's how I do it. But the difference is there's less stress when you know that's how you work. And even I found with my energy type, I I do my best work a lot of the time when I'm not at home. So for me, again, it's that awareness of like, oh, if I go to a cafe, sometimes I do these little like CEO trips where I go to Palm Springs, that's my place of choice. And I'll just get like a really cute little hotel room. I'll take my sticky notes, my whiteboard. And my brain also has the belief working gets to be as nice as it can be. So for me, something that's helped me a lot is like, if I know I have to do, I, I work best doing kind of sprints of work and then big gaps. What my what works for me is, okay, what's going to make this the nicest possible experience it can be? So again, you could work last minute and decide you're going to be cramming and it's going to be stressful. And da, da, da. For me, I'm like, okay, I'm going to take myself to a cute little hotel. I'm going to get room service. Like I'm going to make it like the loveliest experience it can be. And I want to be clear, even if that's not in your budget right now, is it just that you go stay at a friend or like you get an Airbnb or you do you go to an internet cafe every day? Like what's the alternative for you? But I think it's noticing like, where have you created work that you felt like, yeah, that's good work. I like it. I was in some kind of flow state. And what happens if I just remove the judgment around whether that's good or bad? Oh, so good. I'm feeling I'm feeling called out by that as well because it's it's so funny. It's like, is there actually something wrong with the way yeah. that we're working? Is it actually bad or wrong? Or is it that it just doesn't look like what someone else is doing? Yeah. Or what we've been told. Yeah. And you're trying to force yourself into a mold that just does not fit. And I think you said making the most of whatever way you work best and then just leaning into that instead of judging it is such good advice. And even like planning, I think like planning can be a really helpful self-care tool. So you can see, like, like I said, even my client who does last minute work, I'm like, all you need to do is have it allocated in your calendar. Those two days before your deadline mm-hmm. are going to be your last minute time. So I think there is a difference between kind of completely abandoning any kind of conscious decision making versus just knowing your energy type and how you work best. And I think that has been huge for me. And and I, I think the more I become open to it, the more enjoyable working, being an entrepreneur actually is. Absolutely. And obviously it's worked out well for you. You've now built not one, but two (laughs) successful businesses. You've done some amazing work as a makeup artist, work with all kinds of celebrity clients, but you've now started coaching other creatives as well. So do you want to tell us a bit about how you made that pivot? Why? And yeah, just give us all the details. Yeah. So again, I think after 17 years in the industry, I was working with some of the biggest artists in the world, people like Doja Cat, Naomi Watts, Chelsea Handler. Like I was doing mostly kind of like actresses and then a little bit of in the music industry. And I think the big turning point for me was I recognized how much change was happening in the industry, but I could still see how guarded it was and how much the door was closed Mm. to, especially to people who, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, when I think back to the creative industries, when I started out, the people who were successful were often children of famous parents, or their mum worked at Vogue, or they had some kind of in where assisting for two, three years was fine, because they could live at home with mum and dad who lived in London. Yeah. You know, I, I have a, a picture on my Instagram of the room I lived in when I was a, a makeup assistant I actually couldn't stand up in it it was like a cupboard I was literally Harry Potter in the cupboard (laughs) so I I think knowing that a lot of people's experience is okay I'm gonna live off rice and beans I'm gonna do whatever I have to do because I got told I have to assist I have to be in these cities I think there was a part of me that especially watching what I had done I realized oh, I have so many systems and strategies. And it started with makeup artists first, where I'm like, if they did that, I'm pretty confident I could get them not just booking celebrities and global brands, but doubling the bookings they have currently. So we started with just makeup artists. And very quickly, we had clients like 
literally blowing their own minds like going from like no bookings to doubling their bookings we had clients tripling their bookings we had clients making their first 10k month but clients making their first uh, six figure year doing things that even they were like wait no I wasn't told this was available to me okay and it started with that and then naturally we had more people who were like well I'm a photographer like I want to do this like will it work for me and we then had like garden designers we have um we have video editors like photographers like anyone who is a creative who needs bookings we have a process that will show you how to double them in any market irrelevant of where you live and that really is the special part because again what we teach means you don't have to live in London, you don't have to live in LA, you don't have to play by the rules of what the old school narrative has told us you have to do to be successful. And then we also have a mastermind called Industry Icon. So once you've doubled your bookings, um, that is where we teach you how to go from being fully booked to having worldwide recognition. So be the person that brands want to pay you, start your own education. Again, what I learned from having a coaching business is how many people want to learn from someone who's done the thing they want. People are desperate to learn to do the thing that you've done. And they've paid tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands sometimes to go to universities to come away with a certificate that doesn't give them anything. So for me, there was so much pull to give the information that was needed, the strategies that have impact, but also create a supportive environment and a community where creatives get to come together. And there isn't this dog eat dog vibe. There isn't this starving artist narrative. We talk about money. We celebrate money. We celebrate all the wins. There's no win too small. And I want to create the industry that like baby Harry wanted. Like that's my goal is I want the industry to look how how baby Harry would have loved to see it. Yeah. I just love what you're doing so much. And I think there's been so much gatekeeping in these industries, like mm. you said, and so much information has been kept from people because I think there's been a lot of fear, right, around competition. You know, photographers would be, you know, I don't want to show this information because then this person's going to come up and take my clients. Yeah. And what you're doing is just the opposite of that, you know, sharing this yeah. so really and creating a community instead of the competition. So I just, I love it so much. So I love how you're just totally flipping the script and changing the narrative, which is what this podcasting community is all about so thank you yeah do you want to tell everyone about your free webinar if they're curious like where to get started and you know how can they start learning from you you've got totally free resource Yes. So we have a free webinar, which will teach you how to book celebrity clients and double your bookings in any market, which you can just go to at harrietheadfield.com and go check out the free training. We would love to support you. Come hang out with us on Instagram at Freelance with Freedom. And yeah, you're in the right place. We can't wait to meet you. Lovely. I'll make sure all the links are in the show notes as well. I have one last question before we wrap up with our bonus round. I'm curious if you could go back in time to baby Harry, just starting out, trying to break into the beauty world. What would you tell her? I think I would say it's all going to be okay. And you're going to be so proud of the things you're going to do. And it's not just the work. It's not just the celebrities. It's not like, don't worry, which again, seems really funny to say now, but I also think like own your weirdness. Like, I feel like the thing I wish I could go back and tell her is like, you're so lovable with your weirdness. Like your, your weirdness isn't a problem. And like, I want you to own it. I want you to just own it and run with it and celebrate it. I love it. That is the the perfect <laughs> note to end on. Own your weirdness to everyone listening to us. Yeah. It's great advice. Okay. Are you ready for our savor and celebrate bonus round? Let's do it. All right, Harry, what is something you're savoring right now? Rest. Good answer. Straight to the point. That is it. (laughs) Period. (laughs) Lots of rest. I'm in the season of rest and I'm loving it. (laughs) Yes. You know, it's so funny. I have had so many people say that answer and everyone just, you know, you can hear it in their voice. They're like, this is the season of rest. They're enjoying it. They're coming back and it's it's awesome. I love it. It's so good. (laughs) Okay. Secondly, what is your favorite way to celebrate? I mean, I'll never say no to a margarita with salt. That's always a good way to celebrate or a glass of Prosecco. How did I know you were going to say that after the comment earlier? I was like, she's a margarita girl. I, I love a good margarita. Um, again, I love travel. I love, it, again, it depends on what season I'm in. Sometimes it's like mm. a solo trip to New York where I might just go have a little explore. Sometimes it's a little cabin in the woods with my husband or doing a little road trip with a girlfriend. It really depends what season I'm in. 
Mm-hmm. I think we all go through the cabin in the woods season every so often. We're like, I've just done it. I did it like three weeks ago and I'm like, I want to buy a cabin in the woods. <laughs> oh yeah. We all need that every so often. <laughs> okay. Last question. What is a win you've celebrated recently? It can be big, small, business, or personal. A win I celebrated recently was this year. And, and for so many reasons, I didn't hit the goal I wanted to hit, but I've got to a point where I'm like, there is so many phenomenal things that happened this year. And I think that's the win is being able to sit with not hitting a goal and still celebrate everything that happened. And be like, again, like with an OCD brain, it's very easy for me to attach to, but you didn't hit the goal versus like, but what about all the other goals you did hit? And this has been my biggest year in business yet. It's been, I think, the most I've learned about myself this year. And all of those things get to be celebrated. So I think it's really like a it's a season. It's a year of growth. And also coming away with my goal for next year has been fun. Mm -hmm. Like I've really thought this year, how can I do what I'm doing right now, but just with more fun? I love that. And I think it's such a great reminder for people, you know, this episode will be airing in the new year, but right now we're coming up on the end of the year. So if you, you know, didn't hit your 2023 goals and you're looking back and thinking, you know, oh, you know, I didn't quite reach that. I think it's so important to think like, well, what did you accomplish? Like business, personal, monetary, non-monetary, like what did you do? Because a lot of times, like I know I've had seasons where you reach the end of the year and I'm like why well, don't we even really care about those goals that much anymore because yeah. so many other things have have come up and shifted and changed yeah. so are you you know clinging on to these goals that really don't matter that much to you anymore and just look back at what you did accomplish regardless yeah lovely note to end on so Harry I'm sure everyone listening to this is eager to have more of you in their life and business already so please tell everyone where can they come find you hang out with you online where's the best place to connect Amazing. Well, I would come say hi. I always love saying hi to people. I'm a talker, as you can see. I love love a chat. Um, so come find me at harrietheadfield.com. And then I have two Instagram accounts because I have Freelance for Freedom, which is where all my coaching stuff happens. And then I have Harry Makes it Up, which is where I do all my content creation and continued work as a makeup artist. Awesome. I'll make sure all the links are in the show notes so everyone can go find them. But Harry, thank you so much for joining with me. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a blast. Hey Trailblazer, thank you so much for listening to the show. If you found this episode helpful, would you do me a favor and help spread the word? Share it with a friend, tell your mastermind group, take a screenshot and post it on stories. I'm at copy by Meg on Instagram. If you want to tag me or just come say hi, I would love to hear from you. Until next time, remember fortune favors the bold, but success favors the stubborn. Keep going, girl. You got this.